They're not surviving. They're thriving. They're not hidden figures. You just haven't been looking. These Black and Latinx women in STEM have stories to share about their challenges, successes, and lessons learned. It's time to amplify them. My name is Matt Stevenson, and I can't wait for you to tune in to Technically 200, a podcast about Black and Latinx women in STEM. On our season one finale of Technically 200, I'll be speaking with Nivette Bailey, a classically trained ballerina with a PhD in chemistry who just happens to be a single mom and a software engineer at Etsy. She shares her non-traditional path into tech and so much more. This episode was so exciting that we only scratched the surface and I cannot wait to have her back, hopefully, for a future season. All right, let's dive right into the interview. I would like to welcome Nivette Bailey to the Technically 200 podcast. Welcome, Nivette. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Ah, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, so uh, for our listeners, Nivette and I went to high school together. We, we both grew up in New Rochelle. Did you only grow up in New Rochelle or did you move around before that? Um, I spent a little bit of childhood in, in Manhattan and then New Rochelle, like at school age. Okay. Can you describe New Rochelle or at least your experience <laughs> in New Rochelle to our listeners? Well, I think it's different now for sure. Um, oh, wow. At the time that we were there, it seemed sort of just like a little bit of a desolate suburb of New York City where there wasn't a lot happening right in New Rochelle. Mostly people lived there and would leave to do any type of activity, like either go into New York City or like go to White Plains or some other nearby town where there were things happening because there wasn't anything happening there. Man. That's what it felt like to me. <laughs> You're clearly more exciting than me. I thought New Rochelle was great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was just on my skateboard, on my bike, up and down the block. I was like, man, this is the life. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, so I spent a lot of my childhood in ballet classes, and and I actually left during high school to con- to pursue ballet. So I think that maybe we just had different interests. That's... And New Rochelle had a little more to offer you. <laughs> sidewalks exactly they, they were yeah. great. <laughs> you know, well well kept you know on occasion let's start from not the beginning but where you are right now so right now you are a software engineer at etsy yes that's correct and what is etsy etsy is an e-commerce website where people have their own shops that are usually just run by a one or a few people and they sell handmade or vintage items um, through Etsy's website. So it's basically like a bigger kind of website that allows individual people to have their own small businesses. So Etsy's website is, or any website really, is maintained by software engineers. So that means if you run into a problem on the website, the engineers are the people who fix it. Um, If something doesn't work or something is weird to interact with, Um, When there's like new features available for people on the website, engineers build those. So like it works, the way it works is a team of designers comes up with some idea and then the engine and then design it and then the engineers like put it together and make it happen. How long have you been with Etsy now? Four months. Oh, you're brand new. Okay. (laughs) I'm new, yeah. (laughs) So four months in, you started after the pandemic hit. Correct. And I was, they, I was part of the first remote onboarding. So Etsy went fully remote, like the, in the week before I started at the company. Um, 
they mailed my laptop to me and it was a little bit, everybody was sort of in chaos in New York at that time. And I was starting a new job and a new career. You're a first time software engineer <laughs> and you don't even have the luxury. I mean, I call it a luxury, but I mean, I think it's, it was the standard pre COVID of working alongside your team and being able to, to look over your shoulder and ask a question, but instead you are starting this new career from your home. Yes, that's right. Okay, so what has that been like? So I think actually like I'm at an advantage because it's my first engineering job, so I had no expectations. And I'm just like, oh, this is what it's like. Everything's remote. I'm like on Google Meets a lot of the day. And like when I want to ask questions, I use Slack. And, you know, I learned how to code in an in-person environment, but the working at a job, doing it is a little bit different. And this is just what my job is like. So I think I... I I feel like people who may have had other engineering jobs have had to make an adjustment that I did not have to make because I just am starting in this remote way. Wow. Okay. And, and so you feel a little bit more comfortable uh, and you said that you had learned in person. So did you go through a boot camp? Yes, I did a boot camp. I did the Grace Hopper program at Full Stack Academy. Okay. What, and what is that? It's, um, it's a program that Full Stack Academy designed to help, uh, diversify tech because tech has traditionally not forever but for most of the time been male dominated and lacks a lot of underrepresented minorities and so the Grace Hopper program is designed for women and non-binary humans to be able to learn in an environment where we're surrounded by other women and non-binary humans and then um, they graduate like a similar number of students from that cohort as well as the regular full stack academy which is mostly ends up being mostly men and so the idea is to make more engineers that are non-men i love it we yeah. need that it's and, awesome it's really great <laughs> <laughs> well so there are two things that you said that's that stood out to me uh i'm just a stickler for language so one is that you mentioned that it wasn't always traditionally men working in computer science and is it is it right that maybe back in the 60s 70s and, and prior to that that computer science and technology was at least half half or or maybe more women so i think so like i it's interesting that you asked this i just heard a talk by a woman who's been working in computer science for 60 years Whoa. um and she basically walked through like the evolution of computers as we know them today, decade by decade. Um, and she said, she pointed out, and I, I'm not very familiar with this history, um, that back in the day when computers first started and they were still using like those punch cards. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, yeah. But, um, the, when, when they were still using the punch cards, it was like typists that were the people who were doing the programming and typists were traditionally women. Like it was a woman dominated field. And so at that time, women were the ones that were, there were a lot of more women working in computer science. And then there, there are like um, a few articles that I haven't gotten a chance to really read and more information about how the shift happened from women mainly working with computers to it becoming a male dominated field. But that, I mean, here we are today. So that definitely happened somehow. Um, but, you know, like programs like the Great Hopper program are working on shifting it back so that it's at least... 50-50 representative of our society. That is awesome. And that's something that we're working on through Code to College to the majority of the students we serve are women, so 53% and trying to, awesome. trying to get that up. That's really um, awesome. 
Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, a lot of companies are really interested in diversifying their um, employees too. So that's really great. So the other thing that you said was looking to increase diversity with uh, more placements of women and non-binary humans. So is there a particular reason why you said humans as opposed to people or, I don't know, some other descriptor? Not really. I don't think so. I just, I, it's, it's like, I feel like I can still stumble over that, the way of phrasing things because um, it, it's a, the concept of gender, of like identifying gender is something that I kind of took for granted as a younger person and like as an adult have had to like change my mind about what gender is and gender fluidity. And so I feel like I still stumble over saying how to say, how to appropriately say people that are not men when I really just mean non-men. It's not always, it doesn't always feel like appropriate to say non-men because um, I think a lot of times some people find it offensive, usually men. Really? And so men it, find it that may, offensive? Yeah, sometimes men find it offensive that like things are specifically designed for people that are not men right. because in our patriarchal society everything is for men um right. and so like I, I depending on the context I feel like I can sometimes say just not men or sometimes I need to be very specific and say women and people who identify as neither men or women or you know like I have to be like give more descriptors I personally have always been fascinated with I don't want to say the concept of patriarchy because I feel like that sounds as though it doesn't exist. So I, I, I so the institution, is that better? Yeah. Or like, yeah, the existence of it. The, the existence yes. of it. Yeah. So I've, I've been fascinated with, I mean, I, I guess I have that privilege to be fascinated, it, fascinated by it as opposed to, you know, oppressed by it. Correct. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's, isn't that interesting to discuss? Um, but, but can you talk about how the patriarchy has affected you as a woman, as a, you're a mother, as a sister, as a daughter, as a professional? Yes. I think in general, I'll start, I'll t start like broader and then like dive in. In general, I think living in a patriarchal society means that male is the norm and anything that is non-male is like the other. There's some things that I notice that are just very, seem very trivial. Like I was filling out an application for car insurance and it has like a drop-down menu that you're supposed to pick your gender and it's automatically on male. So it like shows up the page loads and I look at it and it's like male is checked and I have to click and scroll down and click female and in and then you know I am I guess I I have the privilege of it even saying my gender because that those are the only two choices and those two choices don't necessarily define everyone's gender um and so just that amount of extra work that I had to do as a non-male basically like explodes in the in like my in all aspects of my life everywhere so it's like if you're not the default then that means that you have to do extra work to make up the difference or something like that and then and there's also times where um i think just as a woman i feel like when people look at me they don't necessarily assume that i'm smart or they don't necessarily assume that i know at software engineering or that i whatever and you know like that i know the things that i know because I don't look like the people that are on like the 
the media's portrayal of whatever the thing is. So like, if you think of a software engineer, often it's like um, some kind of like white male in, in a dark room with like a computer screen lighting his face. He's alone, um, the keyboard's really loud. And like, you might, maybe he has headphones on. And that's kind of like what, like a software engineer looks like, or like a hacker. Like that's what the media's portrayal of software engineer is. And that's not, I don't look like that at all. And so like, when I think when people look at me just in that, in that aspect, even it's like, oh, like what makes me like prove to me that you know what you're talking about, where I think if I was the default, it's like you kind of, people will make an assumption that the person knows already what they're talking about until they prove otherwise. So like, I feel like I'm coming at it from a different direction. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking now, like as a mother, like I have a son. And so I definitely feel like I'm very conscious of what gender means and describing history in such a way that it is told truthfully. Um, and that is complicated because America has historically whitewashed history and watched history of like all things that seem like they may, might be oppressive. Um, and so not only is it difficult to like find the real history, but it's difficult to communicate it in a way that's believable when all around us are portrayals of history that are false. Like we just had a conversation about Pocahontas in the car <laughs> the other day. And um, I'm like, well, it's possible that she didn't want to marry that white man, but she didn't have a choice. And it's like, you know, in an age appropriate way, I'm trying to describe that this person may have been enslaved, but like there's not necessarily evidence because we have this like very romantic story that, you know, she fell in love with whatever. Um, and so, so like, I don't think as an individual person that I can personally dismantle patriarchy by teaching my son that women and men should be treated fairly and equally. But I definitely think that it's, there are conversations that I've been having since my son was like, could understand that women are treated unfairly. And then also I'm a black woman. And so we have conversations about race as well, that people are treated unfairly in our society because of their, um, of how they identify and not necessarily because of anything else. And that not only does that happen, but also that it's important for us to recognize it and then think about ways that we can improve it for like in the future. And it's really interesting that kids just, it's very obvious to them when you say something like, well, sometimes women aren't treated fairly, as fairly as men. They're like, why? Like, right. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> like why would they like why would they do that and it's like yeah good question <laughs> yeah no that's that's it's it's fascinating well they're just so direct and they have this incredible ability to simplify things that i think we as adults complicate it's amazing yeah like there's always these people that are like how do you explain homosexuality to your kid and it's like oh like that man loves another man and the kids are like okay like right. there's no because they don't have all the same baggage of rules and things that adults have yeah well so i what's what's uh what's interesting is this this moment in which they're uh, the 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 call it the mainstream or the predominant consciousness is recognizing inequities that black people face and yes. my right i i'm i am just by nature skeptical that's just how i i've developed as a human 
I'll use your phrase, I'm a human. Yeah. And uh, I would love to hear your take on this. I'll describe it as a moment. You don't have to use my words, but your take on it, as well as how you're discussing what's going on with, with your son. Yeah. So I think, um, I definitely feel like what is happening right now is different than anything that has happened before. Um, and my reasoning for that is related to Facebook. <laughs> so I will elaborate on this. Um, so when I had my son, I like, you know, had, so I sort of felt like isolated, like moth moms. And I joined a bunch of mom Facebook groups in, with like various themes, like locations. So like there's a bunch of groups that are located for like people in different neighborhoods of New York City. Um, and various interests, like I used cloth diapers, and I was really interested in baby wearing, which is just like various types of carriers to carry your child. Um, and because I use public transportation, a stroller wasn't practical. And so I was very, really interested in baby wearing. So I got into a lot of baby wearing groups. <clears throat> and then in like 2015 and 16, there was this like, I would say like a comeuppance, like, so the, the, histor the historical parts of baby wearing are that indigenous people have been wearing their children like for as long as we know. And in modern times, um, white people saw indigenous people wearing their children, or very specifically a German woman um, saw in Central America indigenous people wearing their babies on their backs in like these beautiful woven fabrics. And she um, stole the design and like went back to Germany and created a company of, of wraps for wrapping babies. And then used the same exact pattern. She named it a racist word, and it. And then like the industry grew. That was, I think. I feel like that was like in the hip, like this 1960s or 70s. I don't know exactly what the history of this is, but that that kind of sparked this industry. And so then like as attachment parenting became more of like a theme and a norm in like the millennials generation, um, people really like were excited about baby wearing as a way to like be close to your children. Um, baby carriers became popular, like there became ton of, tons of different brands and styles. There's some that are based on like traditional Asian carriers that people in various indigenous, indigenous people in Asian countries had. Um, and, but the main like spark for this in, in like Western Europe was this stolen design from Central America. And so in 2015 and 16, I feel like there reached a quorum of people of color who were kind of tired of hearing this racist word of the name of like this very popular baby carrier and really wanted to emphasize that um, the reason that we have baby wearing now as like this kind of gentrified hippie thing is actually be because indigenous people carried their children. Um, and so there are a lot of discussions mostly initiated by people of color. Um, and also I want to like just kind of throw out there like a lot of various African nations still have people carrying their babies on their backs. In, and I, I can't be more specific than that because I don't know all of the history. Um, but I do know that there are a lot of people in New York City, um, especially like many people from Senegal that, that wear their babies on their backs in African fabrics, like, and we see them on public transportation. Um, and so like, I think what was happening, and I hope the story isn't too long, but what was happening is that like black people would, and black people and people whose who's like ancestors are from Central America would like go and be excited about baby wearing. And then we would be told that we were doing it wrong by white people. And it was like, hold on a second. The reason that you even have this is because white people 
got the whole concept of it from indigenous people and now you've whitewashed it and now you're telling us that we're doing it wrong or unsafely and it's like indigenous people have been carrying their children like this for hundreds if not longer hundreds of years if not longer um and so there was this like kind of like realization that people of color were tired of of like the bs and were like you know the reason that you have this is because of indigenous people the the way that you're treating us is racist and so like all these conversations happened and it was a really it was a really striking time because it happened sort of in like a domino effect where you know there was a recognition that this pattern was stolen from indigenous people and that the name was racist and then there were also other types of patterns that were based on like traditional um, woven fabrics from various type various parts of the world and the the concept the like patterns had just been stolen by like some white person who was who has a weaving company and they weren't giving credit to where the pattern had come from and we're just making money off of it and so there's all this appropriation happening and so um they were kind of like this, there was this domino that happened throughout all of baby wearing and in the mom groups where people of color led the discussions there was like a, a push for social justice and a push for recognition and a push for apologies too of like we, we stole this pattern and we're sorry and we recognize that it's offensive for us to either continue to weave it or to name it this and so like and it was what, what was the most interesting to me about it was like when once the concept of social justice was introduced to a new group of people in whatever facebook group it was there were like two directions that i could go one was apologies and recognition of wrongdoing and white privilege and um, colonization and then like how do we fix this and like what can we do now like we can't undo that this was all stolen from indigenous people but like how do we move forward and the other was complete denial erasure removal of all the people of color from the facebook group and just like continuing on as though nothing had happened and like continuing on with behaviors that were racist and just a complete denial so like the thing about that was that all of these conversations were being led by people of color at that time and it, it sort of it like exploded and then it died down and like I of course left all the groups that decided to be white supremacist baby wearing groups <laughs> and, and felt like much more welcome and comfortable in groups that recognized and were willing to have discussions about social justice and racism and cultural appropriation and like I'm still part of those groups today so um when when like this this moment that you called it <laughs> happened in 2020 that same thing happened but now like on a much broader scale and so like i am still interacting with those other moms but i'm also like and that was a very specific topic but so now i'm in like all these mom groups that are like location based and so to me it's almost a bigger deal because the the baby wearing moms like i see people with like a cool carrier every once in a while and i'm like oh i like that you know whatever but like the location-based groups are like, these are people that are at the playground where my kid is. They're, um, you know, people that I run into on the subway, like maybe they're parents at my child's school. Like I, like these are people that are like in my daily life. And so the same, the same type of thing happened. I was in a group. Um, people started pointing out that like uh, there were some racist comments being made, you know, and it's, it's never overt racism. It's, covert racism, racist, racist comments are being made, assumptions are being made, a lot of discussion about nannies in New York City always, um, and discussion about caregivers in general. And um, when, when like Black Lives Matter, like the, the protesting began, you know, like reactions to that and racist reactions to like a perspective of protesting. And it was the same thing, like the groups would take one or one or the other choice, like either we're going to recognize that we've been problematic and we all need to learn and we have white privilege and we're going to 
um, identify how we can learn and change and like be a place that's safe for people of color or we're going to double down and we're going to like eject the people who are like causing a problem by in, by basically demanding that they be treated like human beings um and so like um that happened to the biggest new york city mom group they doubled down and kicked out a bunch of us that were asking for a black moderator um and i i now like forget why i even started talking about this like very long story but um oh yeah you asked like what is this moment so like i so so the thing that was different about this this time was that these these discussions were instigated by people of color, but then they were rapidly picked up and the momentum continued because of white people. And so like the difference between, for me, the difference between 2020 and 2015 is that the conversations are now happening by white people for white people. And in 2015, it was people of color exhausting themselves, trying to convince other people of our experience. And there were a lot of people that were interested in it, but there weren't a lot of people that were willing to really embrace the experience that people of color have in America and then continue educating white people on that. And so like, I really, I have seen that, that change and I, I hear your skepticism, but I really feel like at this time there are at least more, maybe not the majority still, but like more white people who are very interested in educating other white people on how they can dismantle racism in America. And I think that while racism is the main topic, like we're recognizing, there are a lot more people also recognizing that there are other forms of oppression, like the Me Too movement happened, you know, and I think that there are more people who are willing to say, oh, there are people who are being oppressed in a way that I'm not familiar with. And not only should I believe them about their experience, but like, I'm in a position of privilege, and I should be educating other people that are in a position of privilege about their experience too, so that they don't have to do it. So I think, I, I think things are happening. So how do we how do we sustain this and and make sure that it's not just a moment? Because what you've described is it sounds like there's some seeding of power, there's some recognition, there's some uh, taking up of a mantle that's that has has not really been ours. It, it shouldn't have been ours, but uh, it's one that we've we've taken up, and now it, it sounds like it's it's being transferred. What is it? And you know the listeners can't see you, you giggling or laughing. Um, so yeah, because so, I'm like, we've been saying this for 400 years. Like, it's right. not none of this is new. You know, like black people in America have been like, we want to be treated fairly. We're human beings for like a long time, a long time. And so it's a mate. Like, I I really struggle with trying to feel like very optimistic. Like, finally, you know, I hear white, I hear non-black people talking about this in a way that is like real and painful and that they want something to happen. But I'm also like, why did it take so long for people to start listening, you know? And how long is it going to take for people to start actually making changes? Like, I think there there was a lot of momentum for people as individuals to start reading about things or even just to see things in a new perspective, like in a way that they hadn't realized, even though we've been telling them for this whole time. Um, but I like how do we keep it I'm not sure I have no idea like I think that I think that a lot I know personally like a lot of white people learned started to actually listen and are so distraught that that black people experience what they experience in America that they're like deeply affected and empathetic about it and it's like messing with them and and I'm like I I hear that that's like a hard thing but also like we've been living this for a long time and so I I don't have the patience for you to be like, oh, it's my feelings and, you know, like how horrible. It's like, yeah, I know, because it's happening to me. Like, I get it. So, like, what are you going to do about it? Um, 
So I, I definitely, I, th- I think honestly, like the momentum is going to have to happen from just from white people continuing to want to educate and do more, you know, like they, like the more, I hope that the more people listen and the more people find out like how much energy we are all, we've all been expending as like members of oppressed groups, they will recognize that they too need to expend at least as much energy to dismantle the system that they have created, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that it hasn't been as much of an emphasis. And I mean, when I have these discussions, I'm like, you know, for example, like talking about like segregation in New York City public schools and things, it's like people of color in New York City haven't been the ones that are segregating the schools. <laughs> so how do you expect us to be the ones who are going to desegregate the schools? Right. You know, like people of color are not the ones that created the system of white supremacy in America. So we cannot be the ones that dismantle the system of white supremacy in America. You have to do it. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah. I think that's the next, you know, those are, that's where the conversations need to go. What do you, one thing that has fascinated me, and I, I, I can't, I feel like I keep using that word. There's a lot that fascinates me. I, I, don't, I don't think it takes much, but I, uh, I don't, I can't put my finger on it. I don't even have a hypothesis as to what catalyzed this movement. You know, if I think most people, if you ask them mm. that question, they would say, oh, you know, George Floyd's murder. But, you know, to your point, this is not new. Police mm-hmm. brutality is not something that just started uh, even looking to the history of the police uh, force in the United States. And so, and n- nor is the filming, nor the, um, the, mass, the massive consumption of police brutality. None of that is new. And mm-hmm. so what do you think catalyzed this all of a sudden? Is it the fact that we're in a pandemic and everyone's yeah. just home and yeah, the video on exactly. repeat. I don't think it's, I think it was easy. Like if you're, I mean, it's hard to even think about the time that I like commuted to places and like, how did I do all those things? Cause I feel like I still barely have time to do everything I need to do and I don't even go anywhere anymore. Um, but like you, people were so wrapped up in their own lives and like going to work and doing all the things that they were doing that they would see this flash on their phone, you know, like another black person was killed by police. And then it just was replaced by whatever the next alert was in the news. And there wasn't, unless people really spent, like were conscious about it and took time. Like, I don't think that there was a necessity to dwell on it. And then all of a sudden we're all at home and like, you know, just a few weeks into the pandemic and probably have consumed all the available media. (laughs) And then, you know, like this very, like very dramatic event happens with video footage. And it's, and this is also like, it was, it was seven, wasn't it seven minutes? Uh, Like the police officer. Seven or nine minutes, yeah. Yeah, or not, I mean, this. it wasn't like this person was shot accidentally, you know, or like there was no, there was no gray area in this video. Like it was very clear what, what, what happened and a lot more people had time to sit and watch it, I think. And then also a lot more people had time to be outraged. Like they weren't busy doing things. Like they, like a lot of people have time to march and have time to protest because there's a pandemic. I think that's, I think that's one of the things. Interesting. I have more thoughts. Do you want more thoughts? Well, so, well, we got a whole lot to talk about in your background. Yeah, I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> well, you've got to, no, but I think that's fantastic. And I'm sure folks, uh, I'm sure folks want to hear. And we can absolutely stick on this, but I, I do want to address some of the other incredible things that you've done. So you have a, um, an undergraduate degree in chemistry. Yes. 
and it is from Northwestern University. You also have a master's and a PhD in chemistry from Columbia. Is that right? So I actually have, I have a bachelor's and a master's in chemistry from Northwestern. And then okay. I have a PhD from Columbia and on the way to your PhD at most universities, but not all, you get two more master's degrees. So I have a total of three master's degrees and a PhD and a bachelor's degree. Good Lord. <laughs> Just racking it up. So at, at some point it becomes a sport, right? Like how many can you get? Oh, <laughs> well, so like I thought at one point, I'm like, it would be cool to go to law school so I can have a JD too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's maybe for like my next lifetime, I'm not sure. Um, but th- those were all a lot of work for definitely. I can yeah. imagine. Do you have a love of learning? I do for sure. Um, that's like, and that's one of the things that I think is really fun about software engineering is like, you never know all the answers. You always have to find them. So I get to like search for stuff and learn new stuff all the time. And I guess scientific research is like that too. Like we were always in, in graduate school, we were doing, you know, new find trying to find out new things that are unknown. And so it's the same idea. Like you might be able to repeat types of experiments, but in a different way. So you're always still like finding out new things. We're talking about your degrees, but even before that, you were a ballerina. Yeah, so I left high school. I'm a high school dropout, I like to say. I left high school when I was 16 Mm -hmm. um, to go to a ballet school as a full-time student. There was not an academic component of the school. I just went to a ballet school that had classes, a lot of classes. Um, And then I became a professional ballet dancer, and I danced for some regional companies in the United States before I started college and where did you go to ballet school Uh, it's called the central pennsylvania youth ballet it's in carlisle pennsylvania and you you did that for how long um i did ballet for like a little over 10 years let's 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 start even before this let's start even before this so the folks don't know you are you are a twin yes i'm a twin so how was how was how was it growing up not just being it a was, twin, but yeah, that was, was childhood. Cool. So it was cool because there was always someone else that was just as weird as me. Um, and so I never felt like I ever needed to fit in to what other kids were doing because there was someone else who had like the same rules and the same kind of restrictions as I did. Um, and so that means like I never learned double dutch, unfortunately. I always wanted to, but I just played other stuff at recess. And then, you know, um, we all we had the same like after school activities as the young children and so it just seemed normal that I would go do ballet gymnastics horseback riding like every day and I don't to this day I don't know that any other kids <laughs> did that stuff um and then our interests sort of started to, to like um fork from each other in middle school where we were both invited to try out for the track team and I was like I hate running I've never do that and my sister was like "Ooh, that sounds awesome and so she ended up doing really great um, sports things and I try to, to stay as far away from sports as possible and then I like got more involved in ballet your sister's a trip by the way I, I ran track with your sister and she completely denies that she remembers me it's, it's wonderful she's like you were you were not good so I only remember the uh the, the athletes you know I remember she she was a pole vaulter I think yeah she was like the first like female pole vaulter in in New York State or something like that like she was like a big deal yeah she went to college on an athletic scholarship yeah you should probably do another podcast with her (laughs) yeah no she's she's super cool that you know that's a really good idea so she's a mom too now her son and my son have the same birthday 
What? And yeah, her son was born six years after my son this year. Yeah. You all planned that, right? No. <laughs> I'll, 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 no but it was pretty exciting. And I was like, oh man, I hope that your kid comes on the same day as my son's birthday. And then it happened. So that's awesome. That's, yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we can end that joke right there. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you grew up having a twin. Um, sounds like it was a great experience. Um, things started to diverge in terms of your interests, but um, what was your childhood like? like? I'm really like, I don't know that I have so many memories. Like I think we just, I remember playing with her all the time. Um, and then I just remember really being busy, like after school and going to camp and my, and my mom worked. So like she had us in stuff all the time. Um, it was fun. Like I was like very, I think I was very physically active even before I was very involved with ballet. Like I remember just doing a lot of, um, a lot of like physical things, but I just always, I just was laughing because I just, I always hated sports. Like I tried a week of soccer camp once and I was like, oh, this is the worst. <laughs> um, but I liked swimming and like gymnastics and dance. And so I tried, I really like wanted to do a lot of those things. We had like music lessons at some point, but I never practiced. So and that still is true. I'm not good at making myself do things <laughs> on my own. So I don't think I ever um, really reached my full potential there in music. Uh, but I, I love music. And so that was one of the things that I found really appealing about ballet. And at what age did you start practicing ballet? So I think I, I always remember taking ballet classes. But I think I started when I was like six. But I, it was just like a casual, like one day a week. Um, for an hour or something like that. I got very serious about ballet when I was like 13 or 14. And I started going to ballet summer programs. And then I wanted to go away from home and stay at the ballet school that I was going to. But it took several years to convince my mom that she should let me move away from home as a teenager without finishing high school. So how do you, yeah. how do you convince your mom at 16? Yeah, I think it's a great idea for me to drop out of high school Right. Away my mom was an academic too so she was like not super excited about me not completing high school um so I think that honestly well the ballet school it's not like an expensive place to live it's not like a college like it's not like you spend the tens of thousands of dollars that you spend to send your child to um to pursue higher education um so that was one thing that was okay about it but the other thing is my mom really just wanted me to be happy and I wasn't happy in New Rochelle going to high school. And even before I left, before I moved away to Pennsylvania, I was like, not attending high school very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would, I really wanted to just go into Manhattan and take ballet classes. And so I was able to sort of do that by skipping school a lot. And so I think my mom really recognized that I had like a dedication to it and that trying to force me to do something that I wasn't interested in doing wasn't going to work. And so I think I'm really lucky to have a mom that thought happiness and like a non-traditional path was a more important thing to pursue than just doing what seemed like the right thing and the thing that worked for her. Talk to me about how that, that experience shapes who you are as a mom, because that type of support I don't know that I hear of that that often, um, particularly when it comes to education um, and and making those types of just life-changing decisions. So how has that now shaped who you are as a mom? Um, I definitely think, 
I mean, I was able to drop out of high school, but then I still have like a bunch of degrees. So I think there are multiple paths to even achieving the same end goal. Like even if your end goal for your child is, you know, a PhD or like going to an Ivy League university, it doesn't mean that they always have to go right after high school or graduate from high school or whatever. Um, but I, I really think that it's important to like know your kids and that they're like from the time they're born, just smaller people, but with the same like desires and goals of things that they want to accomplish and things they like and things they don't like. And it's really important to like, listen to them and um, try to understand and be interested, even if it's not something that you would want for yourself, that they might want something else. And then like do what you can to help them get to the place that they want to be. And since it's kids, like, I think the place they want to be changes a lot, especially when they're, they're little, but you can still like support them in whatever way it is that they need support. And then when, and also support them when they change their mind. Oh man, that's beautiful. Well, so, okay. So, uh, ballerina at 16 professional, um, professional ballerina for 10 years. So at 26, 25, 26, what starts to change for you? So that was, um, when was the mortgage crisis? That was like 2007, 2000, 2007 to 2008. Yep. Yep. Okay. So um, I'm giving away my age now, I guess, but like <laughs> I had, oh, so in 2005, I was dancing professionally. I got really interested in Bikram yoga. I don't really know if you know this about me. Um, and so as soon as my contract ended with Louisville Ballet, I went to Bikram yoga teacher training and became a Bikram yoga teacher. Um, and so in 2005, 2006, I was dancing uh, full-time and teaching yoga because um, like I was I was kind of doing like some freelance work and stuff and then I ended up moving I was living in Chicago and then I ended up moving back to New York and I was dancing full-time and teaching yoga a little bit and I was my mom worked for a college and it that meant that I could go there for free and so I was like I should maybe I should go to college <laughs> And the reason that I decided that I thought that I needed to go to college was because I thought that I would need to have a bachelor's degree if I ever wanted to buy a house one day. That was my reasoning. I thought like, I want to buy a house one day, so I probably need to get a bachelor's degree. Where, did, where, um, do, you think, where do you think that came from? I, I have no idea. Like, it just seemed like, you know, in order to get like the kind of job, there wasn't any linear thought, obviously, because I am definitely not closer to buying a house than I was in 2005. Um, <laughs> but student debt is real. Um, but I thought like to have the kind of job, you know, when I'm done being a performing artist that will allow me to be able to buy a house. Like I probably need to have more than a GED. I got my GED, um, when I was 21. And, and why did you get it when you were 20? Because so, because there were, again, like, I don't know. <laughs> just, be, just because I think I was living in Colorado. I was dancing for Colorado ballet. And I was like, how do you do this? Like, what do you have to do? Because, like, I'm a high school girl. Like, what do you have to do to get a GED? And I think I looked it up, and I found out that you have to take a test, and they have, like, a class. And I was like, oh, I'll just take the test, and I'll just see what happens if I get it, if I pass enough. And then if I don't pass, then I'll just take the class, and then I'll take the test again. So I just, like, signed up one day and took the test, and it was that was it. All right. Yeah. That's great. I yeah, mean, so I, I think that my perspective of, like, what – of academics in general maybe are not necessarily what other people think about them turns out you don't having a bachelor's degree has not gotten me closer to buying a house but that's what I thought at the time <laughs> well but it but it also seems as though your um your perspective of academics is not as formal or as rigid as the norm 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways that people can learn things. And I think this is a, maybe a whole other discussion, but I really think that our, we place too much value on formal education and that had to do with the colonizing of America in general or like the world at large. And there are a lot of kinds of education that you cannot learn in school and that are very valid and important. Um, and so I kind of also felt like I always had access to education, which is maybe something that I'm lucky to have been able to have. And so I didn't necessarily feel like a time crunch to do things at the time that like the, that most people were doing them. That, that access to education, I mean, you just said more than a word uh, because that access to education is, is so important. I, I keep having these, these flashes and memories as you speak. And when you say access to education and um, those lowered barriers, I just remember a stack of Encyclopedia Britannica's. <laughs> yeah, we had. The, I had a stack of Encyclopedia's as a kid too. Well, so for for our younger listeners, that was that was our Google. If you, if, yeah, there was some stuff definitely like a lot of stuff that wasn't in there, and you just didn't learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I I just remember being a kid, and anytime I had a question, grownups were like. Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia yeah. Britannica is right there. Go to the library. If yeah. you want to know more, you have to take out books about it. I know. That's right. By access to education, though, I mean like you know public school, but also like I didn't at the time place any higher value on an Ivy League education over like a community college education. I, to me, like it was just college, mm-hmm. and so I think that perspective allowed me to set like appropriate goals because someone with a GED who who has been out of education for 10 years like isn't necessarily the type of candidate the colleges are looking for so I I will be like I enrolled at the school that my mom worked at but they wouldn't matriculate me because I hadn't finished high school and I had been out of school for so long so I was like allowed to take classes but I wasn't technically pursuing a degree until I could prove myself um, and so I had to, I was supposed to go to school there for a year. And if I did okay, then they would let me be on like a, the track to get a degree. So I took the same classes, you know, and I sat in the room with people who were pursuing degrees, but I wasn't technically pursuing a degree at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I think there's a lot of things that people don't necessarily know you can do right. to like get onto the path that you want to be on, even if you're not starting in the same place as everyone else. It's, it just sounds so empowering. Yeah. I don't know that it seemed like that at the time. I just. Well, but we um, have. Oh, sorry. Good. No, it was a small liberal arts college and like with small classes and it was all women. And I still like, and I, after that went to Northwestern and then Columbia and I still like very much see the value in going to a school like that. Like, even though I've had, like, the types of, quote-unquote, like, best education that is available in the United States, like, there were a lot of things that that school offered that you can't get at uh, one of the big, very expensive universities. So, I think, it's, I can't speak for anyone else. One of the things I wonder about, sort of that time in between, and, and then I do want to move on because there's so much more to talk about, is how did you nourish your your education and your learning in the interim while you were uh, pursuing um, your professional uh, ballet career? Yeah, so ballet, 
that's how like ballet you have to you work with people so you have to work together always you work with other dancers you work with artistic staff when you go into the theater you work with the stage people and you follow a schedule and you have to make sure that you eat the right types of food so like you I had to like learn a little bit about nutrition that was appropriate for my body um I you're constantly listening to music and counting and like fractions and you know it's not calculus but it's there's physics involved in dance. How do you make your leg go higher? And how do you balance on a, like a tiny point shoe? And like, what happens when you work with a partner and like various shapes that you need to make and, and like moving through space and like, so, so like, I didn't do anything. I just did ballet. And there's so much to ballet that people don't really understand is happening when they watch it. Um, that like, there was no, I didn't feel like I was out of school. I was just out of sitting in a classroom. Um, we're, we were constantly learning new dance, like new dances. Like in Colorado Valley, we did over 150 performances a season. So that's oh like gosh. between September and May, I know. What? <laughs> um, and so it was like in three weeks, you learn an entire like production or like three short pieces. The whole company learns like the entire thing. And then as you're doing it, you're starting the next one. So at nighttime, you perform the thing that you were rehearsing for three weeks. And then in the day, like a little, a little bit, um, shortened but there's some rehearsal time and you're like doing a completely different thing when you're in the daytime you're learning a new ballet while you're performing something at night um and that's like not even the most rigorous schedule i know like new york city ballet does different stuff like every day when they're performing so they're the company is like constantly learning new things so it's like like i said like education is not always the way we think of it happening in school like my brain wasn't tired of learning because i was still constantly learning new things so it wasn't hard to start you know studying classroom stuff again wow thanks for your grace yeah that was that probably sounded pretty ignorant (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's no way like i don't i don't have any idea what type of work goes into creating any other kind of art you know like i see a painting and i'm like that's cool but like i have no idea what how many hours it took to make or i mean i think that's just the nature of of art and like being a professional artist for anything like you don't know what people are doing it's just the art when you make art it's like people see it and appreciate it in their own way but they don't really understand the work that goes into it unless they try to make it themselves. Yeah. Well, I, so um, I, I very much appreciate the strength and just the, the mental acuity that it takes to do ballet or any, anything with that much physicality. I mean, you were talking about you hit 25, 26 years old and you're looking for a change. Yeah, so I so I just I, I was in New York and so I just started taking classes because I could um, like academic classes and I was still dancing full time. Um, and then uh, I had like a romantic relationship that I wanted to move back to Chicago. And I just I just applied to any schools in Chicago, like any colleges that their application deadline had not already passed. Mm-hmm. So I had literally no idea what I was doing. I just like there was now Google because it's 2006 or 2007. It's 2007. Mm-hmm. And so I, I searched for schools in Chicago. I had no idea about like the rankings and everything. I just looked for application deadlines. University of Chicago passed like the day before. And so I just called them and asked if I could still apply. And they were kind of like, I guess. Um, and so I wrote some essays really fast and like sent off the stuff they requested. I applied to Northwestern. Um, and then there were some other schools that were sort of the application deadlines were farther out or they had rolling admission. 
And so I was like, I'll just wait and see what happens. I think, I feel like I must've applied to some other schools that I don't remember right now, but I, I think, I feel like I, I applied to like three or four schools, sent off some stuff, waited to hear back, um, moved to Chicago. And then I found out that I got into Northwestern and I was like, great, I'll, I'll totally go there. That sounds awesome. And I just accepted. I never visited the campus. I didn't know anything about it. Um, I got to Chicago and I was like, I should go to see it before I start. It was like July. <laughs> Like I should go. I I just chose. I think I'd I'd been taking some classes that were geared towards nursing because I thought being a nurse was an interesting profession. Um, and so I'd taken some math. I took like a statistics class. I'd taken a little bit of chemistry. And nursing required like four psychology classes, and I hated the first psychology class I took. And I was like, I'm not doing nursing anymore. This isn't mm-hmm. a thing. So, but I liked chemistry. That's fun. I'll just do that. Chemistry sounds like a great major. So I put chemistry as my major. So I got to Northwestern in July of 2007 and I set up a meeting with my like academic advisor who I had been assigned. And I found out that Northwestern was like ranked fourth in the country for chemistry. And I was going to be a chemistry major and they were really excited. And my academic advisor, when I met with him was like, oh, you should start now. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, a class just started like summer intensive chemistry. Like you should just enroll. And I was like, uh, okay, you know, I guess, sure. What do I have to do? And they're like, go borrow some money and sign up for this class. So I did that. Cause I just, I had no idea what I was doing. And I, my real, I remember my first impression when I, when I went to the campus, I was like, oh my God, it's so gorgeous. Look at all these trees. And I, have you ever been to Northwestern? I haven't. It's, it's beautiful. It's a lot, it's on, it's along the lake. There's a beach. There's like beautiful stone buildings with stained glass and like huge tree. It's like, um, it's like everything that you could possibly imagine in a college campus. And I got, I got off, I think I took the, the train there, like the commuter rail. And I remember like getting, getting off and like walking to the campus. And when I thought I was like, no way. I'm so <laughs> lucky. <laughs> so I just borrowed the money, signed up for this class, started late. Um, and it was like intensive accelerated general chemistry or something and I was not prepared in any way shape or form for this class like I found out later during the orientation that like you know 85 percent of the students that were enrolling in the freshman class had been the valedictorian of their high school oh okay (laughs) some like large number and I was like cool um and so yeah but you but but you dropped out of high school so you you never know you could have been the valedictorian (laughs) I was I was not on my way. <laughs> um, and so this class, like when I started it, it was just like super fast. And it was, you know, one to two chapters of the textbook a day. And I just remember like being totally overwhelmed. And I, I had only gotten A's at the school that I had attended the previous year. And I just felt like I was totally failing. And I had no idea what was going on and I couldn't keep up and I was raising my hand and asking all these kinds of questions, which is apparently something that people don't do. But I was like, I just paid $3,000 for this class. So I'm definitely going to raise my hand and ask questions. And I like sat in the second row and I was like very actively trying to get my money's worth. Um, and towards the end, I think the deal that I had struck with my academic advisor was that if I didn't do well, he just like, they could just like take it off, which is, I, that's something they do, I guess. So whatever. Um, I didn't ask a lot of questions. I was like, okay, that sounds fine. So I did this and I was, by the end of it, I was going to get a B and I thought that I would be able to get all A's um, still. So I decided to not put that on my um, academic transcript, but it was like my first introduction to Northwestern. And I 
I impressed the chemistry faculty enough that they let me start an accelerated chemistry program. And that's how I was able to get a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in four years there. I mean, you, you decided, so I'm just going to sort of summarize it for everyone. You, uh, you dropped out of high school at 16. You were a professional ballerina for 10 years. You, because of a romantic relationship, you wanted to go to school in the Chicago area. You applied to colleges and just happened to apply to the fourth ranked chemistry department in the country and decided because nursing was not what you wanted to do because of the number of psychology classes, chemistry seemed cool and you ended up getting into <laughs> the accelerated chemistry program and earned a bachelor's and master's in four years. Is that, did I get all that right? <laughs> That's correct. Okay, got it. Okay. That's right, cool. yes. Yeah. All right. So. And so I think what started this whole like part of this discussion was you asked me like, I think you asked me like when, what happened? Like, how did I transition from ballet to like going to college? And so like what happened was I was still dancing during this time or I was, and I was trying to like do freelancing in Chicago while I was attending Northwestern. And this is when like the economic downturn happened, like the mortgage crisis that I guess is what they call it. So all these ballet companies started downsizing and there wasn't any money for the arts um, and it just seemed like I was really satisfied with my dancing career and it seemed like a good time for me to retire from ballet and just like focus on academics. You know, I like simultaneously getting jobs was getting harder and I was enrolled in this really rigorous academic program. And so I was like, that's, I'm good. I'm going to focus on one thing. Um, and so I focused on school. That's, <laughs> I, I think that that's fair. So, so we'll, We'll attribute it to the global financial crisis. And sure, the first one. <laughs> the, 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 right. The, first the, one of our the, lifetime. Yeah. So far. <laughs> well, so, so uh, I hear you. So during those, so that was 2007, fall of 2007 that you enrolled or 2008? 2007. Okay. And at what point did the romantic relationship start? Just right before? Ended. I mean, it had been going on and off for a long time. So like it ended finally in 2007 also. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, okay. So yeah. the timing was pretty good then, right? Yeah. Like I moved back to Chicago and then it just sort of fizzled out. And I was like, well, I like this school and I like what I'm doing here. So I'm going to stay. So I stayed in Chicago. I moved to Evanston, which is where Northwestern is. Like it's just the suburb just north of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, so I moved like a mile off campus and just like, got to studying and I was still teaching yoga part-time like to pay for to pay like for you know food and rent <laughs> working through college doing that is there good money in teaching yoga no no okay nope. got it but it's better it was slightly better than like federal work study and it, the hours were a little bit more flexible so gotcha. yeah it's not great though gotcha I see what you did there more flexible yeah um, so, um, so you finished in 2011. Yeah. So while I was, while I was at Northwestern, I also got involved in, um, undergraduate research. Mm -hmm. And so this was just like another, I don't know what I was doing. Um, someone said, you should do research. So I said, okay, or mo more than one person was like, you should do research. Cause that's what you do when you go to a re top level research university, apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was like, okay, what do I like? So they're like, just go look up, you know, what research is happening and like, send an email to the professors that you're interested in their research. 
And I started looking online at what research was happening in the chemistry department. And I had no idea what anybody was talking about. I didn't know any of the words. I didn't know what anything meant. I'm like, what's the point? Like, I couldn't figure out what's the point of what they're even doing. Mm. And then I saw this one group that was collaborating with the Art Institute of Chicago. And I was like, I like art. That sounds awesome. I want to be in that group. And so I emailed him and I said, can I be in your research group? And they actually like usually love to have undergraduates because it's like free labor because mm-hmm. um, they don't have to pay us, but we can learn to do things. And so it was kind of, he's kind of famous. I, again, like didn't know. Um, I joined this research group that was collaborating with the Art Institute and I started doing some research on nanoparticles while I was there. And what is a nanoparticle? It's, it's like a, any like a small amount of substance like a tiny substance that is on the scale of a nanometer which is uh one times 10 to the minus ninth of a meter so like a one billionth is that correct a billionth of a yeah one times 10 to the the minus ninth would oh just oh not minus 10 got it so uh would would an atom count as a nanoparticle no atoms are smaller they're on the angstrom scale which is like uh one order of magnitude smaller but it's like a small collection of atoms, basically. So after, so you're doing the research because people told you to. They said that's yeah. the thing you do. So I just did this and I, and it was, I wanted to do, I tried to do research with a computational chemistry lab because I thought that I would be able to get Wi-Fi from the beach and I would be able to do my research over the summer from the beach. But I didn't get like a grant to do that research. So I joined this other lab that did Art Institute collaboration research. So that was, that's how that happened. Um, and it was, it was pretty interesting. I got to shoot some lasers and play with some, um, precious metals like gold and platinum, Mm -hmm. silver. And that in fact is you have to have, you basically have to have undergraduate research experience to get into graduate school in chemistry. So I, I didn't know at the time that that was something that I needed to do if I wanted to go to graduate school. But I found out later, like, thank goodness I started doing this so that I could go to graduate school. Um, So I finished the bachelor's and master's in four years. And then I graduated. Well, I applied to a bunch of graduate schools and finished and went to graduate school. uh, Specifically for your PhD? Yes, to get a PhD in chemistry. And and why, why a PhD in chemistry? You know, I I had already pursued my dream career as a ballet dancer. Like, I had done it. And so every decision that I have made since I retired from ballet has been like, why not? Like, I don't, it's not, like, necessarily my passion. It's something that's very interesting to me at this time, and I seem to be okay at it. And so I might as well do this thing. Um, So, like, as I was sort of looking towards, like, okay, I'm going to finish this undergraduate experience. Like, what am I going to do next? Um, to pursue a PhD in STEM, you usually get paid a stipend. Mm-hmm. And so that seems like a very safe type of job to get. Even though the money's not very good, it's better than no money. And I didn't mm-hmm. have to decide, like, I want to do a job of some sort. Um, and even to get a job in chemistry, most of the time you have to have a PhD. Um, and so it seems like very clear, like, okay, I'm studying and I could make a choice to, like, take time off. But, like, I really already took a bunch of time off from academics. So, like, why would I do that again? And if I go to graduate school, I'll be getting paid. So that sounds great. So I'll go to graduate school. Wow. Uh, I can only imagine people meeting you must say, man, so you must have gone to school for computer science and you've always wanted to be a software engineer. And, you know, uh, you've been doing this for years and years and years. 
but I'm, I'm, you're probably not meeting people. I'm not meeting people. And I, I feel like when I meet people, so it's interesting that you ask this because in, the, in definitely in the last 12 months, so I finished my PhD in May of 2019. And so in the last 12 months or maybe 18 months, because I started interviewing for jobs when I was towards the end, I've had to like explain my, you know, resume. Yeah. <laughs> never really thought about it before yeah. and then even more so like since I started the boot camp and I'm on like my third career yeah. um it sounds made up like it, yeah. it sounds like I think people are like what did she do you know often um and it doesn't yeah it just there and they really the question is always like they people want me to be able to thread these things together like what is what is ballet related to chemistry related to software engineering and I'm like I don't know like I don't know if there is anything and I haven't really tried I can think of like when I was you know when I was interviewing and I had to answer specific questions like what did you what what's your history bring and I'm like oh well collaboration from working in a ballet company and a different kind of collaboration from doing research in chemistry and you know like that's a really important thing also in software engineering like there's definitely like threads that thread through all these things but like at large of a topic I don't know I don't know well, you, you have got to be the, I mean, I'm just putting a recruiter's hat on. You are like, you're like a unicorn. You're, you're this person with this varied experience, like this varied life experience and professional experience. Um, you'd be great at, you know, uh, holiday and, and office parties because you've got all these stories to tell. And so I'm really good at parties. I, I like to go to parties and talk about stuff. I think it, it's always surprising to people. <laughs> Why is that? Why is it surprising? I mean, when I start talking about like what, like cause in America, everybody always asks like, what do you do? And so I can say like, oh, I do this thing. And it, when I was in graduate school, it was already, I think, unusual enough to see a woman of color who was getting a PhD at an Ivy League university in chemistry because there weren't there at any one point when, when I was in that program, there were only three of us that, at right. the most. Um, and so like that alone is like, oh, that, what is that like? You know, how, how is that? And then I'm also a mother. And at any point, there were only three of us also like one of that, you know, so like when you start overlapping these kind of um, underrepresented groups, like there aren't a lot of people like me doing the mm -hmm. things that I've been doing. Um, and so like that alone is interesting. And people are always really interested in lasers. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, what do you, I, we were like, we would, the broader impact of the research was like developing antibiotics. So they're like, tell me about antibiotics. So they start asking questions about, you know, bacteria or like random things that they think you'll know. And so they, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. What, what's the, okay. So what's the weirdest question somebody ever asked you because of your background? And then what's the, the uh, one that you had the most fun with? Oh man, I think I'm too serious. Because I can't, I don't think, I, I don't think that I've ever thought about these things in that way. I've definitely heard many chemistry pickup lines oh, oh. that were like pretty funny. Hit, like hit me. Best I, one, best one. Now I'm blanking. Tell um, me, tell me one that landed. Not, none of them landed. Like some of them made me laugh, but like, I, I don't think that I'm attracted to the type of person who uses chemistry pickup lines. Maybe that might be the case. I'm not sure. <laughs> Can I tell or you, I just, or I just haven't heard the right one, honestly, like, I don't know. Can I tell you, I was, so I taught for two years and uh, I, I saw one of our students, he was, he was kind of a, a class clown and he, 
we were we were about to start a quiz and he kept talking to the girl behind him and i said you know hey you know eyes on your own paper he said but mr stevenson i'm i'm studying over here so you're you're not studying it's like no 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 i'm i'm absolutely studying over here you know it's just like are you talking about math he said no not math but just a little bit of chemistry oh nice <laughs> yeah yeah he Clearly, clearly that wasn't my line. That was his. He sold it a lot better. It was good. That's really good. I'm sure yeah. I messed it up. Um, That's good. So, so you're not you're not attracted to chemistry jokes. I mean, um, so far, I just I mean, it's possible that I haven't heard the right one. Like I don't know, but. Gotcha. Well, so, so uh, you don't have the weirdest question. I mean, it's just like doctors. People always asking, you know, can you look at this right? <laughs> Somebody had to. Have, nobody asked yeah, you. So the difference, though, is like that. Like people interact with doctors in their like real lives, and so mm-hmm. like always have like random things that they think doctors should know. Like people yeah. don't interact with scientists. We're this weird. Like we're again like supposed to just be isolated in a lab somewhere with like a white lab coat and a pipette and goggles and gloves, and we're just alone. You know, being nerdy about science and like people don't people don't interact with scientists. I think they don't have the same kinds of questions. You know, like, I think kids ask me stuff like, uh, like, what are leaves for? You know, and like, what are, I'm what are leaves? Leaves, yeah. like on trees? Leaves on trees, yeah. Like, oh, why are those there? You know, and like, I can answer those kinds of questions. But like, adults know that or we're supposed to have learned it in elementary school um, and don't really have any specific questions about being a graduate student or doing research. I guess like, right now during a pandemic, there are a few more questions. Like sometimes people ask things about vaccines, but I'm always like really excited to talk about those kinds of science things. Cause I think science education in the United States is lacking. And I think also that kids are like natural scientists and, the, and like the scientific method makes sense for most things. And um, we sort of move away from thinking critically like that. And I don't know why. Yep. So I'm like, when people ask me things about vaccines, I'm like, let me explain it to you. <laughs> ask me anything. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. I mean, kids, kids love science. Yeah. But even just like in their approach to the world, like, why is it like that? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's no like, well, this is the way it's always been. And they're like, not used to anything. So they're like, how come this is, you know, why is it called this? Like, I, I get a lot of those kinds of questions. Like, why is this named this? And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not a linguist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Answer. Well, well, so uh, you you get your PhD, and and what's next? Um, so yeah, so I was finishing my PhD, and uh, I sort of realized that academic research isn't the most like healthy environment to work in. Um, what do you the mean next by that? Step, so, I mean, there's a lot of microaggression in general. I think working in any majority white male space um, for for women for people of color for women of color for people who are parents when they're when like parenting isn't really like well I guess in any profession really parenting is not a respected thing usually for women although for men it has the opposite effect statistics have shown Um, and so I just felt like a lot of the time that I was spending in my in like doing research was a struggle and it wasn't there were there are no black faculty members in the chemistry department at Columbia. Mm. Um, 
there are only three women out of, I feel like it's 28 or 30 people, and they hire a new faculty member every year, but for some reason can never hire a woman or a black person. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just didn't feel like, I felt like I would have to keep struggling to prove that I knew what I was talking about, to, to prove to people that I should be respected or that I you know, was smart and I was like exhausted from having done that for so long. Um, and I, so I, <laughs> I was, I think it was, it was around, so I graduated in May. So sometime between September and May, I, I was outside of my son's preschool and just kind of like looking up at the sky, like, what am I going to do now <laughs> with my life? <laughs> I know I'm graduating soon, you know, like by the end of this academic year, what am I going to do? And I, and I think I ran into like another parent and I, I sort of like said it out loud. Like, I don't, I'm not sure like what I'm going to do. I mean, he, he might have only just said like, how are you? And I decided to actually answer that question. <laughs> like I'm struggling with my, like I'm, I'm having an existential crisis or <laughs> like, I'm struggling with like what I'm going to do next. And it turned out to be this really friendly man who works at Google as a software engineer. And so he was like, you know, oh, I have a PhD and I'm a software engineer and it's really awesome and I love it. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Um, like, and he's like, let me connect you with some people. I was like, okay. Um, oh, because I think I'd been applying for jobs and I wasn't really very enthusiastic about any of the things that I was applying for, but I was doing it because that's what you do. So he introduced me to a friend that worked, that worked with him um, and I met her and she was like wonderful and she introduced me to her husband and another friend and I met them and they were wonderful. And the, the most striking thing, every time I, so they all invited me to lunch because they work in offices that have lunch. Well, used to, you know, in yeah. the pre-pandemic times, they would invite me to go up to their office. I would go to the office and they just seemed so happy compared to everyone that I was wor working with in academics. And I was like, I want to be happy too. <laughs> um, and they were like super friendly and nice and like it seemed like there were a lot of really smart people um, and I had gotten to do like this a little bit of coding during my PhD in order to do data analysis for the data that I was collecting mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, I, and another guy that was in my lab that had a chemistry PhD like taught himself Python and then wrote a bunch of analysis software that used some math that we were on a paper on together and had like a user interface that made easy for people who didn't know how to code to use and I was like how did this guy do this and like this is so I had it was still under construction so I had to like use git a little bit and, and and like use the terminal on my laptop sometimes and I was like watching him type stuff and I'm like this I, this seems cool I I kind of had the impression like well if a man can do it I can do it there you um, go <laughs> for real and so I was like you know, this sounds cool. And as I was meeting people that work as software engineers, I was like, they're happy and I want to be happy like that too. Um, and so I ended up getting connected and finding about finding out about the Grace Hopper program at Full Stack Academy. And the most the thing that made it possible for me is that it's a post-pay program. So you apply and you can enroll without paying the tuition up front. You pay the tuition after you get a job. Um, and that is what made it possible for me to attend. So I did that. Um, so like, as I was meeting these people, you know, I found out about it and I was like, I'm, that's what I want to do. And so I um, also was living in Columbia student housing and they made me move out two days after my defense or else there would have been like a bunch of extra fees and like money is tight as a single parent graduate student in New York City. Mm -hmm. So I 
defended my PhD. And then two days later, I moved. And then I started learning how to code on a mattress on the floor in my new apartment um, with like surrounded by boxes up to the ceiling. I started learning JavaScript. Um, And then that's, yeah, I started learning JavaScript in June and I started the Grace Hopper program at the end of June. So I want to stop here because we've, I want to say we've done more than scratch the surface, but there is so much more to talk about. Well, thank you so much, Nevet. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You too. Thanks for tuning in to season one of Technically 200. Stay tuned for more interviews and next season where we'll be speaking with Black and Latinx moms in STEM. The Technically 200 podcast is hosted by me, Matt Stevenson. Post-production is handled by Noriel Aurelio. Our theme music is produced and edited by DJ Slice. Have a recommendation for a Black or Latinx woman in STEM we should feature? Email me at matt at code2college.org. You can find us online on Twitter, Instagram, and technically200.com. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next Thursday with a brand new episode.